Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. This show is brought to you by Flatiron's Tuning, your source for any aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts. Be sure to check out our store at flatironstuning.com, and stay tuned with Flatiron's Tuning. Okay, so so welcome back, everybody. This is episode number 46 of the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. So we've got Nigel here with us in the shop, Jeanette uh, from Red Cream. Red Queen Racing is joining us um, at, a, at a different location. And we have another special guest joining us uh, for this episode, and that is Farah Nanji. Uh, so welcome, Farah. Thanks for, for joining us. Thank you so much. So, so Farah, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. you. You have, it looks like you've had a really interesting path to cars and motorsports and driving. Um, you, are, you're, you have a, a full career as a successful musician, as a DJ. But you also like or have found driving in motorsports. And so a number of years ago, I think it was back in 2011, you founded something called Regents Racing, where you're basically doing driving events, motorsports events, that sort of thing. And now you are a host, a a fellow podcast host. You have your own podcast called Mission Makers, where you have taken... The, the, the music side and the motorsports and driving side and, and, and a business side of basically kind of and, and melded all of these things, all of these interests together. And so you've had these, you've created some really interesting episodes with, with various different people from, from the motorsports community, from the music community and the business community. And so really looking forward to sitting down with you and kind of talking through your, your path to get to that point and, and just pick your brain on a number of things. For sure. I'm really looking forward to, to speaking with you about a whole host of things. And thank you again for, for having me today. Yes, of course. Well, and, and so the first question that I have for you is, which, which did you find first? Which, which uh, pull did you have? Did you, were you pulled into the music genre or, the, or into motorsports and driving first? It's a great question. Um, and I would say both of them stemmed from childhood, but um, music came first for me. Um, I, I was sort of, I discovered the Spanish guitar at the age of seven. Um, and it sort of became my escape from a very sort of pressurized and um, difficult sort of world that I found myself in at the time. Um, and, I, and I really sort of, you know, kind of gravitated towards this sort of healing power of music. Um, and motorsports came a little later on. I was around 12 when I got into a go-kart um and so that's when I really you know I think anyone who's been in a go-kart and loves it it's sort of like a mind body out of mind out of body experience um and I got hooked quite quite quickly on um once I started uh, karting but I will say that my grandfather was a huge lover of cars um and we were lucky enough to have a classic car at home so Sundays oh, were you know very much our bonding thing and I think motorsports on a Sunday is quite um you know it is a bonding thing for for families that that sort of like, you know, most of what's nothing like watching a race or going for a, a lovely drive in the countryside or something. And so that's what we used to do. Um, so, yeah, but I would say competitively, you know, karting came around that age of 12. Okay. Well, and, and man, karting is, is the perfect place to start in at 12. I mean, that's, that's, I think it's probably just about the right age where you can really kind of fully appreciate it and decide if you like it and decide if you really want to put energy in that direction. And it sounds like you did. Um, so how, how far along did you, did you make it with carts? And when was there a point where you decided that, that the carting just, I don't know, you wanted something different or, or you transitioned away from that? Yeah, for sure. I'd actually say that like 
12 although like there have been successful drivers who've who've started at that age i i like a lot of people that were in sort of my peers and and particularly when you look at formula one and stuff like that you know these guys start like five or six so i did feel like i found it a little bit late um however you know i absolutely loved it and um first i started just kind of you know doing doing what, what like competing at the track um and kind of just progressing through the different carts that they had there at the time um and then you know sort of started getting my hands on some twin strokes and then rotax um and mm-hmm. the car like we're really lucky in the uk because um you know, we've had so many Formula One drivers come from here. Um, every sort of county almost has like its own racetrack or um, karting track. Um, oh, and wow. they're maintained really, really well. So like um, where I was karting, like that was kind of like where Lewis Hamilton, you know, kind of honed his skills, Jensen Button. So, um, you know, they take it really seriously and they, and, and they have a lot of like programs in place um, for, you know, sort of um, d- different high level karts to kind of come through. So then, um, you know, progress into Rotax. And uh, and I suppose, you know, when you get to that sort of teenage year of like 14, 15 um, is when you could sort of start going down the path of Formula 3 um, and single seaters and stuff. Um, so I did sort of try my, I did have a couple of test days where I was lucky to kind of um, drive that. But at that time, um, my story kind of became a bit complicated because I got diagnosed with this learning difficulty and that learning difficulty actually had a huge impact on my motor coordination. Um, cause it was like a, a delay between my brain sending signals to the rest of my body when it came to, uh, motor, motor skills. Um, mm-hmm. so I realized that, you know, a career in this as a driver, like, although I was, I was definitely, you know, I, I was getting a few podiums and I, I, I know that I had a natural skill set for it. But I knew that like to make it to the to the absolute, you know, pinnacle of our sport, it's, it's probably not going to happen. Um, so I had to kind of like, I, I faced a quite a difficult decision at that point because um, I had to sort of focus on my studies as a lot of people do at that age. Um, but but I knew that uh, that this was a part of me and I, and I somehow found my way back to it um, just in a very different way. <laughs> sure. Well, and, and that must have been been an, an initial uh, a pretty difficult blow to, to find out that maybe that there was going to be this extra obstacle that you would be facing if you wanted to try and continue to progress uh, but it's it's great to hear that you've, you've kind of worked through that um, would you say that because you you'd said with music that it was more from you you found it and it, and it sounds like it was just a really enjoyable experience mm. what was driving and karting primarily an enjoyable experience too or like if you're trying to progress and move forward in that way was it was it more of an was there more intensity to to when when you're going to the track it sounds like if, if it's you know the karting and stuff is taken that seriously everywhere that there's maybe a little bit more more riding on a, a day to the go-kart track versus like listening or playing to music mm, yeah no for sure it's a great question um both of them really for me personally um it, before it all became sort of a professional thing um both of them for me were, were sort of way of healing um i was kind of bullied in school so i found you know, nothing better than really listening to music and also karting because when you put your helmet on, nobody knows who you are. Um, you're out of your surroundings. You're with people who kind of like the same thing. Um, you know, I was a tomboy. I was at an all-girls school, so playing football, cricket, karting, these weren't the type of things that, um, you know, my classmates were doing. Um, mm-hmm. But for sure, I think well, I just found the whole thing fascinating. And I, I love um, peak performance. And I think that's your first taste of like literally being data obsessed and trying to find ways to just, you know, 
cut down that split second. Um, and, and I just, I don't know, I just, I really, I really like that whole aspect of it. Um, because it just, it was just a way of like pushing yourself to the limit. And, um, in the, in that sort of half an hour or one hour race, you know, it wasn't about anything else, but that, um, and yeah, so that, that, that's what I, I really loved, I loved about it. So, I mean, of course, m- music, you know, it's not easy to learn an instrument, of course. Um, but maybe the pressures aren't there so much because you're not at that age, I wasn't performing and, you know, all of that stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and, and so let's, uh, I guess if you're okay with it, talk a little bit about the, the, uh, the learning uh, disability that you were diagnosed with and just kind of what, maybe what you initially started to, to see that you were kind of dealing with mm-hmm. and just kind of how you, how you worked through that. Yeah. Um, I was very surprised. Like I didn't see that coming at all. Um, you know, and it, it was kind of like, I was at this school that was basically top 10 in the country at the time, uh, in, in, in England. And, essentially like all the girls, you know, they're, 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 they were like being not programmed, but like the expectations for them was Oxford or Cambridge. Like that was it. Um, and for me, like uh, the expressive subjects, I was very good at those, um, you know, English, RS, history, um, things like that. But when it came to maths and science, I was just, I was really bad at it. And my teachers were quite surprised because, um, you know, to get into the school, like you're, you can't be getting C's. It's just not, it's just not normal. Um, you know, you've got to be sort of a B, a B is like really bad, but like, you know, it's, you can still kind of, you know, maybe you've, you're going through something, you know, let's put it that way. But, you know, I, I wasn't even, you know, getting close to that. So obviously they were getting quite concerned, um, particularly as the kind of, um, we have GCSEs here in the UK. So as that sort of started coming and that, that when you start your GCSEs, that's like, you know, your first step onto the professional ladder, like that's going to go on your CV. Your grades are really important. It obviously reflects a lot about you and the way your work ethic is. So they kind of just said to me, no, like, look, we think you could do some extra time. Um, you know, maybe it will help you out. Um, so do you want to basically go to an educational psychologist and see like, if there's anything that, you know, you can get kind of thing. So, I went um, and it's just like a one day test and they did like all these different types of tests. And some of them were as simple as drawing a straight line, like 10 times. Um, and throughout the day, basically towards the end, um, you know, the, the psychologist basically said, you know, you've got, you, it's, it's very clear that you've got dyspraxia because um, we can see this kind of imbalance, like even drawing that straight line after you've done it a couple of times, like it, it can't, it doesn't stay straight. Um, and so, and then things started to click a little bit because I realized you know, um, for example, design technology, like I love that. I love that subject, but I could just never cut in a straight line. Like I just, I just couldn't, I don't know why it was always really bizarre. And, um, and then things started kind of making sense a lot. And she said to me at that time, like, you've basically been rewiring your brain to like stay up with this, um, incredibly intense educational system, because for me, failure was not an option. Like I definitely could not be, um, chucked out of school. Like, you know, this would be such a huge, um, shame to my family and, um, you know, for everything that they invested in me, like, uh, you know, I had to, I had to do well. Um, so I just found different ways for me to make it work. Um, but obviously it was really, it was, it was relieving to know that actually, you know, there was something going on underneath it. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of like, how did I process it afterwards? It, to be honest at that age, I, I didn't really, I, there wasn't much support at that age, um, to be on that time, let's say, uh, maybe things are different now, but at that, that time we're talking sort of over 15 years ago, 
you know, these kind of things weren't really um, detected as much. And, and having gone much deeper into my diagnosis, I now know that children can be diagnosed with this um, quite early on. You know, the signs can be there from literally um, when the child starts to walk and talk and, you know, um, these types of things. Um, but I was really lucky to do a TED talk a few years ago. And when I was thinking about the subject of the TED talk, um, it, it kind of hit me that basically for 15 years, I never really thought about the fact that I had this problem. I just kind of went ahead and did it because I knew that innately I love music. Um, and, and I knew innately I love driving and whatever happened, like I was going to find a forger career in that somehow. Um, but when I did the Ted talk it, and I talked about how I sort of, let's say rewired, um, you know, some of these processes that really got me a lot deeper into what was actually going on you know, with my, with the brain. And, and I, I suddenly, you know, took a step back and I was like, wow, like I've actually done all of these things and people would normally never do that. Like some people would be even, you know, find it difficult to even drive a car, like for the everyday use. Um, but I guess the thing about motorsports is like, it is about no fear. Um, and it is about, you know, embracing your limit, uh, you know, sort of going out of your comfort zone. Um, and yeah. not being afraid of failure because it's at failure where you learn what your limits are. And I think because I started doing that from such a young age, it was like that mindset was just ingrained in me to like not to just find a different way to do it because there are a hundred million different ways to do something, right? You just have to find the one that works for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and kind of being diagnosed with something that late on in some ways, that's, that's a huge benefit to you because you've already been dealing with it for long enough that you've found your path through it. Like you, you found your path through being able to play musical instruments. You found your path through to being able to drive. It's just maybe like those, those difficult points at, at the edges. Now you have an explanation for what's going on there. So you can appreciate where you're maybe struggling with this detail or that detail, but it's not, it's not something where it just, you know, if you got it early on, it could have just put a, put a hard stop to trying to move down that path in the first place. Absolutely. Well, and so driving is an interesting thing because it's one of these, it's, it's basically, it seems very simple. There's, there's not very many, there's not very many controls. Um, you don't really have to do a whole lot. It would seem. And it's something where generally people, as they get into it, like to, to learn to drive kind of just like you said, for transportation to get around, spend a couple of days with somebody that can kind of guide you through what, what everything does. You get in the car and, and very, usually very quickly, you can be you know, proficient enough to get around. But then when you, when you talk about driving in motorsports, there's like, there's like layer upon layer upon layer of different levels of, of honing that technique and those skills to get to the point where you can actually become proficient to become fast and whatnot. Is there, is there, is there a part that, that kind of pulled you back to motorsports where it was the challenge of trying to find more paths or more ways to like drive or, or get improve your driving or, or was that was it something that you just enjoyed just as something it's just fun to get behind the wheel and was it just that that pulled you back yeah i think i think it was like you know it, it always it felt odd because it was like one on the one hand it was like you know I definitely know I love this. I, I really appreciate cars. I, I, I love the, the beauty, the design, you know, the, the differentiators between different brands. You know, I love the sound of the engine. And I, and I grew up with that. And also Formula One, you know, just, just also being here in the UK, like a, a fanatic fan, right? Um, and, 
if if I'd been carting and doing really bad, like being at the end, the back of the pack, I, I would have accepted that, you know, this, I, this probably isn't my sport, but because I was getting podiums, I was like, well, then there, then it's just, there's, there's, I've got to figure out a way to like still be doing this because I don't think it's that much of a limiting uh, factor that I can't be um, here. So I, I think, you know, for me, it was just like really failure is just, just not an option. And so, somehow I think, because of, of kind of understanding, you know, when you're in motorsports, particularly at such a young age, like you do have to kind of grow up a lot faster because you're dealing with so many different things. Um, and once I started studying it more as a business and understanding the business side of it, I think that's where I found my true passion for it. Because what, what I found more, more, um, more fascinating, more than anything was the human performance side of it. And the fact that you've got teams and you've got drivers and you've got manufacturers and you've got all these people that are working towards, you know, one or two people's goal in a team, um, and getting all of those in synchronicity, um, you know, sort of, if we talk about formula one, right. You know, 20 or so races around the year, around the year. Um, and you know, none of these guys can lose their, lose their sort of, um, peak, you know, performance at any point. And that's where I found, you know, my, my actual true, I think, calling within the sport, because I definitely enjoy driving. I definitely enjoy, you know, um, you know, going on a racetrack, but what I love more is seeing other people take these lessons and transform their teams or their, their own leadership through, um, through the exploration of the sport. And I, of course, a lot of sports give you those lessons, but I think motorsport is so unique in the ways that it does it, particularly around technology. Um, you know, so I think that's, I think it it takes time. Like sometimes, you know, you, you, you sort of, um, maybe at childhood gravitate to something and it, it just, it's like that, you know, that, that diagram we've probably all seen that like success doesn't just look like that. It's, it's like all over the place. Um, and it's just finding, you know, what, what is the role for you in that industry that really fulfills you and that you can be good at? Because also, yeah, the other thing about motorsport, there's a lot of people we know about in this podcast is like, it's crazy expensive. Um, And even if you were, uh, you know, the most talented driver in the world, if you don't have millions of dollars, you know, that your parents can put behind you, um, then it's, you know, it's, 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 it's super tough to make it. Um, And obviously gender equality in the sport is still something that, you know, we still don't have a female Formula One driver, right? So there's still a lot to be done, you know, in terms of that as well. There's a lot of difficult challenges there for sure. Mm. It's so interesting that you found the through line from basically from music to motorsports into business and then kind of went back from business into music and then back into motorsports. Yeah. It's funny how life works, right? Yes. Well, and, And so we have Jeanette with us and Jeanette, Believe it or not, she actually runs one of the racetracks here in Colorado, uh, PPIR, uh, Pikes mm-hmm. Peak International Raceway. I mean, Jeanette, what do you think, just from what from what uh, Farrah was saying about like helping people realize their motorsports dreams versus actually pursuing the dreams of your own? Is Are there any parallels there where, where one can be in, as rewarding as the other? Or does that does that help motivate you with what you what you're doing with the racetrack and such? Um, absolutely. And just to throw it out there, Farrah, you're a badass. Um, Thank you so much. I just like, I, I think it's super cool. I mean, you're that you're, I'm sorry, I'm going to go sidetrack your, your podium and at these races and you're, and I don't fully understand the disability that you're discussing. Um, but it's more than just mechanical racing takes a lot of mental endurance and mental grit and being okay, being outside your comfort zone. And you hit in all those things when you're discussing that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's super, super cool. Um, but no, absolutely. And I think, um, when you find something that you're passionate about, it 
it doesn't have a choice whether or not it's in your life or not. It's in your life. It's there. It's stuck. So, and I think that when Farrah was describing, like she found her racing, she found her music, and then she found a career in business, but the passions never go away. So you find a way to apply those skills and those grown up skills and ways to make a living into your passions because they're just not going to go away. So I think that does tie to the community a hundred percent, you know, not all of us, I love to drive, but it feeds me to go to a race event and host it and have all these other people enjoy driving as well. So it's, it's just cause that's the passion. So absolutely. There's, there's different. And if it wasn't for everybody who is contributing in different ways, you couldn't have a race event with only drivers. You need people who yeah. enjoy doing the analytical side, the timing side, the setup side, the, the course design side, you need all of that. And then, and then to also put up with everybody and their personalities, it's a lot. And you need all yeah. those people to make the race scene happen. So totally. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and, and so, so fair, is that, is that kind of where the inspiration for Regents Racing came from? Or maybe can you talk a little bit about what the origins of Regents Racing was and, and kind of what, what you do with that? Yeah, for sure. Um, and just just if I may, just um, really quickly, because Jeanette touched upon perhaps not understanding disability so much. I'll just yeah. quickly um, explain it in a nutshell, just in case anybody else listening to this podcast um, isn't aware. Because a lot of people hear that term dyspraxia and they mistake it with dyslexia. And they're kind of like, if you have one, you may have the other. But um, like dyslexia is like a, a kind of an issue with like sort of words, um, word formation whereas dyspraxia is really around numbers sequencing coordination balance like that part of the brain that sends those signals um to the rest of your body that's that's where it struggles so um you know sometimes those children they might seem quite clumsy they they are quite you know never that good at sport unless they really go for it um but particularly obviously you need a lot of balance and coordination um to do those things but yeah so regents racing um yeah, it was kind of, you know, when you're like sort of 15 and, you you know, you're really starting to carve out, you know, who you are as an, um, as an adult and, or as the adult you're going to become. And um, so 15 to 18 was really about, you know, studies and doing well and like making sure that, you know, it's going to get into a good university and everything. Um, and funnily enough, like I took a gap year um, before university and I did two things in that gap year that basically I'd say change the course. Well, I guess allowed me to do what I'm doing today. First thing was, was um, I went to DJ school. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so the story sort of writes itself because um, then in university, I was just DJing um, all over London and, and all of those things. But secondly, um, I interned for Gumball 3000. And that to me opened oh, yeah. up the whole like sport as a hospitality. You know, at that point I wasn't thinking about that. I was just like, just racer mentality. Like it's just about the track. Like there's, I and the poor engineering behind something, but um, having the chance to uh, be exposed to that, it showed me, um, wow, like this whole thing is about communities. It's about, you know, road trips are just the most incredible way to like form a bond with someone, um, you know, and um, yeah, that, that really sort of inspired me. And then shortly after that, I went to university um, and the university is called Regents University, hence the name of the company now is Regents Racing. But basically I, I saw the chance to set up the motorsport society there because it didn't really exist. Um, and at the same time, 90% of our students were international students. Um, and so they didn't know the UK much, um, you know, so they didn't okay. actually realize just how much beauty and how much um heritage this country has with motorsports and 
I just like absolutely like had the, the best time like showing these people like you know um the McLaren factory or like you know going to like doing these drifting school experiences there's so many different you know opportunities that you can kind of do here um and because I was studying business simultaneously um I started seeing in a deeper way like these parallels of of actual you know globalized businesses and how like motorsports can actually have a lot of direct transferable lessons so in essence the you know the the concept was sort of born in university we reached we, we had a huge amount of success with it because in the space of 3 years we had 800 people who had experienced a regents racing event of some kind and those events again you know be like even driving to like the nurburgring like doing european road trips um but i started going i i love i love I, I guess I love events um and I like to do things differently and I love to explore things in all of the senses so for me you know the reason that society became huge was because it it was about the senses it wasn't you, you can be a fan of motorsport and not have to be always driving so like we'd have people who'd come and we would take over like you know these beautiful museums and we'd place like a you know dining table in the middle and we'd have this whole sensorial experience um and to be surrounded by like these incredible cars as well um and so yeah and then i guess after graduating i i did take a pause with it with it for a while because i knew that this wasn't something that was just going to stay within university like this was something that had the potential to be like to 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 kind of grow and um and i needed a few years to figure out how to make that happen um but also in a way my my dj sort of career was being pulled quite heavily um you know at like into that sort of uh, path um and i toured the world for like pretty much 5 years straight and and just kind of had my my chance of uh, living the dj life um and getting to sp- play amazing music in different venues um but sort of towards my late 20s I, i i wanted to come back to regents racing and at that point also having evolved as a human being and like also like in business as well like you know when in some ways like when you're a dj like you're walking into so many different professional environments like you know one day you could be djing like for me I'd dj at Buda bar and then the next day I'd be djing um at a formula 1 race and you have to interact with so many different people and like i i guess like my mind absorbs quite a lot like very quickly in a short space of time um and i just kind of started seeing you know different ways that like i could explore this ethos of regents racing and what it had started and how to actually go much deeper into that um into the vision that i had um and so yeah about uh, just a couple of years before the pandemic um i i relaunched it um and essentially you know we went deeper into the design of events so we would do things that basically would just take you out of your comfort zone completely um so it could be like driving blindfolded with land rover which is something that um we've done many times and you know your trust is completely placed in your co-pilot um and so it's all about communication um and you know tackling steep waters hills but like not being able to see anything um and so yeah just kind of designing these events that like you know as as much of it as as much of it is as a fun day out but there's also like a deeper learning to it and you come out of it um you know feeling like you've evolved somehow and um you've taken a risk and a lot of people are afraid to go out of their comfort zone and i think that's where i i love yeah. that this community is about you know challenging your limits and 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 um and seeing how motorsports can help you do that what's interesting to me is you know in some ways your being diagnosed with dyspraxia took you out of your comfort zone like when you're when everything is normal and everything's fine it's just like well i just need to i need to need to practice more need to drive more and then you find out well you know this normal path is is probably not going to be open to you so you have if you're going to do this thing you have to think outside the box and find a new way to do this thing task that there would be 
easy for somebody normally. Mm. And I wonder, I wonder if finding that different path, thinking outside the box in that way, I mean, like what you're saying about being involved in motorsports, having a love of motorsports, but then applying that perspective to business, it, that's, you're, you're taking a different path, a path, path less traveled. Mm. Something, I mean, it, it totally makes sense when you describe it, but that's something like I never would have thought that like lessons from motorsports, from either from driving, from racing, from organizing a racing team would be applicable, directly applicable to a business. It's, it's kind of like what you're describing with the, the blind driving with Land Rover. It's like you're, you're kind of giving people a glimpse maybe into what your normal process is for some tasks, just thinking outside the box and, and pushing things in a different way. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't change anything for the world. Because I think in some ways, like, it, I, I think people who, who do have these kind of, um, you know, sort of difficulties, they, they see the world in a very different way and they process it differently. And you need people like that because they think completely out of the box and, they, and, and hopefully they galvanize, you know, whatever they might have been their cards dealt with, but then turned it to, to a totally different hand. Um, and and that creativity is is of of being constrained um, sometimes can can lead to really magnificent things. Yeah. Well, and so Nigel, you've been you've been quiet so far. So I wanted to bring Nigel on for this episode because he is he is a he is a complete motorsports person. He's obsessed with with driving fast and all that, but he's also obsessed with music, just mm-hmm. like yourself. Um, so so kind of to both of you, it, like I guess Nigel, maybe to you first. Do you think that there is a parallel? In, in like when you have a passion like music or a passion like driving, does one feed the other? Are they related to one another? Or, or what do you think? I think absolutely. I mean, anytime you get an opportunity to, to chase a passion, you absolutely have to go for it. Um, and I've been, you know, lucky enough to be able to chase both of those passions. And so I've, I also took a year off um, during college to go, tour as a DJ. So I was, I was very, um, very lucky to go do that. And then now I'm, you know, building a race car and going racing and, and doing the driving thing. Um, but I think you've, you've got, there's so many like avenues to explore with when you have a passion like music or a passion like driving. I think that, you know, if you, if you only have one thing that you're going for, it's still, it's still really, um, it's still really valuable. Um, but if you have two and you can interlink them and find ways to make them play off of each other, um, it, it, it adds so much depth to, to what you can achieve. For sure. Well, and maybe fair for you, was it, it sounded like your, your passion for music kind of took over when, when motorsports just didn't quite fit, uh, with your, with your day to day. And then you found a way to bring it back in once you, once you had more of a balance. Yeah, I think it, was, it was like, you know, I, I, you know, for anyone listening who's who's at university, I mean, I, I really encourage to you to kind of to explore like what are those interests, because it's such an amazing place or time in your life to make mistakes, to experiment um, and start things. And, I, and I'm so grateful that I did that because it left me with such a huge foundation of things. And, and because the society, you know, basically became a business, like, you know, we, we treated it like it was a business, you know? Um, so I learned all of those really important skills, like graphic design, building websites, like all of those things. Right. Um, but I, I guess it was for me just when I graduated, just, you know, the, I, I got offered the chance to um, 
to be a music journalist intern um, in Ibiza. And it was just like, I mean, you know, that's like the dream, uh, you know, to spend four months on the island, you know, speaking to some of the best DJs in the world um, and and labels and stuff. So it was just, you know, for me, I was like, that that makes sense. Um, and why not just do that for a bit and see where it goes? But then I always kept my foot in the door with motorsport because A, I had this, you know, incredible community, you know, 800 people, all of whom were around the world. So every time I was DJing somewhere, there's always a Regents racer somewhere. Um, so always there was like this kind of networking opportunity, but also like we, they, like, we were quite lucky because in the society, we had like quite a few um, drivers who were professional. So we actually had somebody who got signed to Red Bull um, racing in the Middle East, we had um, a couple of Lamborghini Blanc Pond drivers. Um, so like if I'd be like kind of DJing um, in LA or something, like they would always kind of like immerse me in their environments or even book me as a DJ. Like there were a couple of times I was booked for the Formula One Abu Dhabi Grand Prix um, for people that were part of Regents Racing um, over there. Um, and so I guess that was kind of like the perfect blend because then I started DJing also for other other brands as well, like um, Goodwood Festival of Speed. And I realized this was like a great way to kind of like, you know, be involved in motorsports and and sort of have the DJ hat on as well. Um, yeah. But I, I guess like, you know, after a, a few years, I was like, and also everybody kept saying like, oh, when's the next event? When's the next event? Because I kind of became known for kind of pulling these crazy events out of the bag. Um, and I and I missed that. So yeah, it, it just, I just, it just took me a while to come back to it and figure out what's the right way to do this. Because when it's in university, it's kind of like, it's under that hat and it's just for those people. But obviously when it's for the wider public, it's a much bigger undertaking. Um, sure. So yeah. Well, it's, it almost seems like once you once you follow your passion, whatever that might be, and and you actually have some success, or or you start like really your, your life starts moving down that path, like there's there's something that is really rewarding about about that. Like it, you you realize it, it's something like you know that that something that might be a small success for others is a huge success to you for that reason because it really it it's. It, you're, you're able to feed your passion every day. And, and then I think maybe, you know, if you've got two passions, you know, once you, once you start moving that down that road with one, you want to try and, and branch out into the other. Mm, absolutely. I think, I think, you know, also that the world is like, people don't have to be so single focused on one thing. And I think even with formula one, what you see is the entire thing is a cross industry collaboration. Like all the sponsors that get involved in formula one, we're talking about, you know, technology groups, energy groups, um, you know, so many different sort of um, types of industries that benefit from that sort of moving R&D lab because there isn't any other place like it um, for those companies. Right. And you see that like when you do merge or cross industries, you, you cross pollinate things that like um, just, I guess, amplify or accelerate your own sort of vision or your mission. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think the world is also heading in that way where it isn't just about being constrained to one particular path. Like you can have multiple passions and just find a way to explore it. But I do think you need to be good at uh, one thing first. I, I think, you know, you, you do need to master your craft first before then right. Move it, moving on, right? Yeah. Well, and, and so kind of related to that, but changing gears just ever so slightly. So, Farah, if I'm understanding right, there's there's another passion that you had that kind of fed into both of these things, which was video games. <laughs> or or uh, am I am I correct in that? Well, I was a gamer growing up. Yeah, I've had yes. to sort of stop gaming just because it takes up too much sure. time. But um, yeah, I, I was a massive gamer growing up. Well, and and so what I'm wondering about, like specifically, is driving games. Was mm -hmm. I, I think 
Now, I know that a lot of us here, Grand Turismo is what hooked us. Yes. Did, was that was that similar a similar circumstance for yourself? Hundred percent. Yeah, it was Gran, Gran Turismo <laughs> all the way. PS One <laughs> back in yep. the day for sure. One. Well, what's wondering? Uh, what's, one thing I've been thinking about, uh, and you kind of touched on it back at the very beginning about motorsports. I mean, motorsports is is an expensive pursuit and, and each level up, it becomes more and more expensive. And so it's something where, unless you have a whole lot of resources at your disposal, you, you can very easily hit a, a plateau where, you know, if you wanted to get that, that next seat in, in that next level up of racing, but you, you don't have the financial wherewithal to do so, then, then that can be a limitation. That can be an obstacle that, that you run into, but, in probably in the last, I don't know, let's say five, seven years, like Gran Turismo, video games, driving simulators, and now now with the birth of esports, things have really changed in that arena. And I, I wanted to see, you know, just what you thought and everybody else about like, is that is that a, a viable path now to like either get you into motorsports or and or like could it be its own pursuit in and of itself? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's definitely becoming its own thing, right? Its own identity, its brands are being formed just purely for esports. And I think the pandemic really accelerated um, motorsports and particularly in the esports landscape. Um, And I think it's a great, you know, it's so exciting, like to think what, what are the options even, you know, as a gamer back then, like to have like what you can have today at like, you know, an entry level price is like, it's so exciting. Um, and I think you can, obviously you can learn quite a few things. Uh, obviously you do need to obviously drive at the same time, like in real life, but I think it's a fantastic, um, you know, way, way into the industry and with the amount of money that's being put through with brands now um, to develop some of these, you know, Nismo driving Academy kind of drivers who've won particular competitions. I think it's, I think it's, it's great. And I think also, you know, it can, for me, what I loved about gaming, of course it's addictive and it's, it's really fun, but it's actually something that really developed my coordination skills much, much more um, because obviously it's all about reaction and coordination. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nigel, what do you think? What do you think is the current state of like gaming, esports, driving simulators, that sort of thing? I think it's I think it's become like a viable path to get more people into at least like closer to motorsport. I mean, playing Gran Turismo back on like PlayStation One, like that's definitely um, that's how I started. Also, and it's it's like it what it's what fuels that fire. But I think now with like things being more realistic and you can get more advanced, like actual simulations, um, you can get a lot closer to, to the, the realistic feeling of driving and, and the experience of, of an entire a race or uh, even like a weekend, like even the formula one games have you doing interviews and you, you have to like do the PR side of it. Um, which is really interesting. So there's, there's definitely a lot more like avenue towards getting closer to the sport itself, mm-hmm. as well as like esports. I mean, that's a thing on its own. If you want to be a professional esports racer, that's a, that is now a career that you can have. Yeah. There's you a lot of professional teams to. that like McLaren, Ferrari, they have their own esports teams now. Mm-hmm. You don't have to move into real racing anymore to be a, 
like a professional driver. You can do it virtually. Jeanette, what do you think? Were, were you ever interested in any of this or? Well, I mean, I was a gamer kid, but I was never, I, we, we all know by now I got a late start in the car scene. I started driving when I was like 27, maybe my first autocross. So my gaming was very much real time strategy and RPG and just not car related at all. So, um, but it's still, I mean, Nigel said it, it creates access and um, the video game world is a world that you can be passionate about, just like you can be passionate about music and motorsports. So even if you're not doing the esports driver, you could still be very involved in the production of video games or the creativity of, of the video games or the artistic side of it. Because, I mean, you play Forza, these cars are beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, um, in the way that they replicate them. So it's a way to be building up the industry and the community without even necessarily being the driver. And, it, and you can do it from your home. It does create that access. And I mean... We mentioned, barely mentioned gender equality and finance, financing earlier and same thing. Like it doesn't matter what gender you are and it really doesn't matter as much how much money you have. You can get involved when it's in esports. And that's actually one of the questions that I wanted to ask about like the rise in esports, the rise in computer gaming. With that, there, there is something that comes to that, which is anonymity. I mean, it, you, you just have a username. So that, it, it's problematic, I will say. I mean, they're, like all of these different rooms are like being randomly put into groups to, to do like online racing and stuff like that. You, I mean, you don't know who you're getting, but in some ways that, that could be a benefit because you can really like excel just purely on merit of your ability um, to kind of rise up through those ranks. So, I mean, do you think that I, I, that's, that's what the appeal to me about is about like these new driving games, driving simulators is that it takes away the barrier of entry so you can compete in pretty much whatever level you want to, and in, anybody can do it, and you have no idea who you're racing against, and so you're just really kind of racing against somebody just based more or less purely on, on the merit of their skill. It does make it easier once you put that helmet on, you're a driver. You're not a woman or a man yeah. or whatever, so it does make it easier to to live that in a way, even though you're not physically putting on a helmet, no one actually sees what your face looks like unless you want them to. Yeah what I would hope and that would be cool is at some point somebody just like, Oh, so-and-so this is like one of the top racers. And it turns out like, Oh, it's, it's this woman that has come up through the, through the ranks. Like now, like it just opens maybe a that door would that fun. wouldn't normally have opened. Yeah, totally. I don't know. What do you think fair? Is that, is that the way things are going or is there a chance of that happening or? Yeah. I mean, a pipe dream? It, yeah, I think, you know, as, as you said, you know, a lot of brands are putting quite a lot of money into this now. So there is an end point, you know, for somebody who's gaming um, ultimately to potentially kind of be involved in a deeper way. Um, also though, it is exciting when you see like, you know, your formula one drivers kind of doing the gaming thing, like, you know, they're kind of, they, you, you can be known as a gamer as well. Like everyone knows Lando is like a phenomenal gamer and, um, and Charles and, you know, it's, it's quite cool to see even the pros like take it on and, and, and how they would fare against others. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, as, uh, as, as you guys were saying, like, this is literally a career now. And, and as, as you were saying, Jeanette as well, like it's, 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 it's opened up, you know, more, more roles that didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago about being, um, a design, a video game designer for a racing game, right? Or, or graphics designer or something like that. So it's, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's definitely that, that barrier to entry, which is, needs to be addressed in motorsport because at the end of the day, it's not a sport like football where you can just pick up a ball, go to the, to the garden and kick a ball and, and get pretty good. 
right? Like the the, the barriers to entry in motorsport, they they need to be um, you know changed. So I think this is a great way of doing it. Yeah. Well, and kind of related to the barrier of entry, uh, one of the other questions that I wanted to throw out there is, um, you know, I, so Farrah, you have a really interesting in, interview with the founder of the W Series, uh, uh, Women's Only Racing Series, uh, Catherine Von Muir. And one of the points that she made there is that she wanted she wanted basically bear, to reduce any possible barrier of entry for, for anybody that could compete in that series. And so... It, so basically that levels the playing field and that the brilliant part of that, it, and in fact, like the details it, it, for people that are listening or watching, and if you are not familiar with all of the, the rules and the setup for the W series, it's a, actually a pretty fascinating way to set up any racing series. It just happens to be that she did it for women to, to get into racing. So you should definitely listen to that episode and check it out. But it, it basically is fully pitting driver against driver. There's really minimal if any advantage from from one car to the next in fact there's there's rotation of the drivers so that there really can't be you know somebody gets this car and that has an advantage and then that's what pushes them up to the top 10 because you know next race maybe somebody else is sitting in that car you know so that it really levels the playing field when it comes to motorsports do do you think that that is that is the purest form of motorsports where it's just driver pitted against driver and there's there's minimal or, or not as many benefits mechanically, or is the mechanical development something that also is part of it, just maybe in, on a different level? I mean, it's a great question. I think, you know, Formula One has been, has been struggling with this, you know, at, at what point is it about the advanced engineering and, and that should be the central focus, or is it about, you know, trying to level the playing field? And, and but then you see like, obviously in the last few years, just how, you know, how crazy the gap was between how much a company like Mercedes will spend and then the back of the pack. And then it isn't really about the best driver at all. It's, it's, you can't yeah. compete with someone who's, who's putting 300 million pounds more than you in a, in, in your car. Right. Um, so, and, and I think that's why a lot of, you know, F1 drivers, again, that when you ask them what, you know, your best times in motorsport, they'll go back to their karting because that is the, the most purest form of, you know, equal, equal car, like, you know, it's just, it's just such a thrill going karting. Right. But the W series, I think a fantastic design of, of taking away the things that were wrong with particular series and championships and just making it about the driver because it it is about talent. And I think that that line just needs to be like that, that there is a line that sort of, and I'm not sure how much fans care about all the advanced engineering that there'll be a portion of fans, but it's, I think more of a niche, as opposed to your everyday person. I think they they are more driven by the personality of the driver, what they've achieved, who they're racing for, versus like, you know, the ins and outs of the specs of the of the car. But that's that's my sort of two yeah. cents on it, I think. Jeanette, what do you what do you think? What is what is the pure sense of racing? I think well there's room for all of it in all the different series and different, you know, because the engineering and the mechanical side of it is obviously a, a really, really fun part and fun part to be competitive about. But it did it does create a problem, especially on this high end when there's access to so much money. Um, the cool thing about and I, I did listen to that podcast, um, which was amazing. I thought it was great. It was very inspirational. Um, but um, the cool thing about doing that and making it about the driver I kind of lost my train of thought for a second. Hold on. Um, 
we can come back to Jeanette. Yeah, we might have to because I just I had a thought and then I got distracted by it. <laughs> uh, let me let me pick Nigel's brain on it. What do you think, Nigel? What is that? Is that the? What do you think of that? Um, I love it. I've always felt like Formula One is really. I've I've always loved the technological advancement in Formula One and and seeing all this oh, technology okay. that ends up like getting banned or something. Um, but I've always felt like that's more a little bit more car development focused than specifically who is the best individual driver, because I love my favorite formula one races, are the ones that happen in the rain, because everybody's like, Oh, rain's the great equalizer or whatever. That's when you get to see a little bit more of the drivers who shine. Um, and you see, you see through a little bit of the technology, um, differences between the teams. Um, but also there's a part of racing where, every single driver wants to win and everybody wants to have a competitive advantage. So even if you go down to, you know, all the way down to karting and everybody's got a very similar cart, like chassis wise, everybody's running the same spec, like sealed motor. Everybody wants to have some kind of advantage. They're going to find something like, you know, it's, it's how they came up with tire blankets, right? Like some kind of advantage to win. And so I, I, I don't know. I don't think you can ever. It's hard to separate the two. It's it's really difficult to separate the two, but I love, I love the idea. I love that. Like the idea that, you know, it's not about the car. It's fully about the driver. And that, that to me is what makes for really amazing racing on track. Yeah. Right. Jeanette. I do remember. Thank you. Go for it. So, yes. um, one of the barriers of motorsports industry nowadays is the fan base and trying to keep them engaged. And when NASCAR was kind of in their heyday, and they and they still have a huge fan base, the fans followed the drivers. It was all about the driver's story, and we talk about that before on this on this podcast. Um, so, when you remove the car development, sometimes some of these cars, these super race cars they kind of overshadow the driver and it's more about the car and the manufacturer and, the, and their stories. When you create the equal playing field, you can actually focus on the driver again. And I feel like when you have that person engagement, when you have someone that you can look up to, that's more creating that fan base. So that's what's really exciting about the W um, series is that it doesn't just have to be women. They can grow into more things. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of creating an opportunity of people getting into watching racing again. It has a very successful fan base all on its own. And I think that's awesome. What What's funny, the, the, what that brings to mind, Jeanette, is uh, the uh, Drive to Win series on Netflix. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, Farah, over there in Europe, I mean, Formula One has always been a big deal. Here in the U.S., not so much, not for nearly as long a period of time. Some of us have followed it for a long time, but it, it really has been on the fringes. But then all of a sudden, when this series comes out, that all of a sudden tells all of the stories behind the racing, like the racing is part of it, but there, there's so much of a story behind every driver in every race. Once that, once that curtain was lifted, all of a sudden this huge influx of new people got really interested in formula one. So that, that's, I mean, maybe that's, that's the hidden side or the, or the, the other side of racing is that there's just so many good stories involved in it. Yeah. I think the Netflix thing was, you know, phenomenal. Um, I think this is the right stat, but I, I read something crazy that like this drive to survive um, thing basically got about 70 million new fans into the sport, which is absolutely incredible. It's just the power of Netflix, right? And I think, again, Formula One, one of the struggles they were facing was like, you know, a kind of 
getting the new generation into the sport that's going to live and grow with the sport and and enable the sport to thrive and continue. So, um, and I think people like, you know, don't, don't realize all of those hidden extra things that go on behind the scenes because prior to, um, you know, a few, a few years ago when Bernie was running the sport like that, this level of access wasn't there. I mean, I think after he left, I, I heard something crazy. Like they didn't even have like a marketing department or something. So, you know, things like podcasts, wow. like all these ways of like getting so much more in-depth like knowledge, they, they just weren't there. So how can a fan have that, you know, um, relationship with that driver if, if all of those points of media isn't constantly being fed through the machine, right? Um, so yeah, I, I love that Drive to Survive show, and um, and yeah, very much looking forward to to next season. There's, this this year, this um, F1 championship has been so crazy that it's going to be so exciting to see what what comes out on Netflix. Yeah, it's going to be wild for sure. Well, and uh, so let me ask you about another series. So Farah, forgive me, but you just posted up something that you got to uh, interact or, or tour one of the. Um, uh, Formula E teams, or or go go to one of their garages. What do you think? What do you what do you think of what Formula E is and and what they're doing as far as it, it's kind of like the W Series. It's a different model, a different formula, but it's still racing. But it seems like it's a very forward thinking model that might be like that that like what Formula E is doing. That could be the direction that a lot of motorsports ends up going in, just because of because of uh, basically focusing on like something that is more sustainable, more renewable, more environmentally friendly, but they also have, <clears throat> excuse me, they have they've really kind of packaged an interesting way to to uh, structure a race series around it. Yeah, it's very interesting, and the story of, of of how the Formula E series got conceptualized and everything is also extremely fascinating as well. So um, anyone who hasn't heard about it, definitely listen to podcast with Alejandro Agag, who started the series. But he literally lift, risked everything to start this thing, um, and nobody thought it would work. Um, but here we are, sort of quite a few years later. I, I think, I think you know, I think, I think there has to be at some point, perhaps, maybe a merge between formula one and formula e particularly around the technology because that's the way that the world's heading um and it is interesting how formula e is designed like this fan boost thing um but i i mean me personally like i don't have that much time to to kind of in, you know get so integrated in it and watch it every weekend um because obviously just even formula one in itself is i mean it's more than half a year right it's quite it's quite consuming um but I think in terms of like what it's doing for the world is, is you, you need places like that where you can literally test technology to its absolute limits for it to then create wider good for the, for the world. Because the, the sort of breakthroughs in energy, as you said, in sustainable fuels, like this is the place where all of this stuff happens. And that is like so important. So I think, I think, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. It will, it will be interesting to see where does Formula E and Formula One, like how do they coexist together and like what, and, and what kind of gets transferred and obviously they're owned by the same governing body. So, um, right. Yeah. They, they might be kept separate, but they, they, I mean, it seems like maybe a merge could be, could be possible down the road, five, 10 mm-hmm. years down the road. Mm-hmm. And also it's like, just, again, just generally, oh. it just, just to touch on one thing other, as, as well as it's, again, it's a place where like, um, it, you know, obviously to get into Formula One C is so difficult. And, and you know, that the thing is, is like, that's just another s- series where, you know, if you, if you're waiting to get that seat, you know, you can go there and like, um, and, and still like do what you need to do, um, get super license points, get the experience. Um, 
and then potentially move over to Formula One. And there are a few drivers who've kind of done that or the other way around when they've left Formula One, they've gone into Formula E. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and maybe just as, as kind of we're, we're getting towards the tail end here, what do you think of the move towards electric motors or, or electric cars just in general? Maybe just throw it out there to anybody. Is it is it a merger? Is it is it kind of like a merger of like these games and these simulators where all of a sudden now you're driving like potentially a game, uh, a car that would behave exactly, literally exactly like it would be in the game? Or is it something where it, I, I personally am still having a hard time wrapping my head around it, but I understand from a from a technology standpoint, like mm. once once we really move in that direction, it should be pretty amazing what an electric car or a car that's driven by electric motors can do compared to a gasoline engine car. I mean, like, I'm still a purist. So, uh, you know, for me, just that feeling of the vibration of a car and like the smell of petrol and like all of those things, it's like, it's just, it's so, I don't know, I, I just love it. And I mean, like for me personally, like I would purchase an electric car, you know, to kind of get around, but I would want to be racing in a, you know, fully fledged, you know, petrol or hybrid perhaps engine. Um, but obviously it is the future and that's just the way the world is going, right? And when you have governments that are making these, you know, mandatory, um, particularly around the production of vehicles, it's kind of like that's just where it's going and and, and totally understand why. And But I, I really hope that the identity of what it was will still kind of continue through and that you know, we will, we will be able to kind of go to a track and, and race, um, you know, your Porsche and, and it be like not, not the electric kind of version. Um, and, and kids will grow up wanting that experience. Cause again, like so sad how manual transmission is just something that a lot of people mm. nowadays don't drive and they don't, they'll just do, cl- yep. um, the, you know, Tiptronic. Um, so I think these are just some of the things right there just fading out as, as we kind of grow, grow, grow. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm a purist. So what do you think, Jeanette? Are you are you eager to move to that next phase? No, not at all. Um, I think a lot of us are resistant to it, but I think it's just accepting that it's there. And I'm kind of more of an observer stance at this point, just to see how it does change things culturally and competitively. Um, and then this is not maybe the the easiest comparison, but I was an English lit major in college, and at that time, that's when all the ebooks came out and digital print. Yeah. And it was one of those things where that um, that's used to scare writers and like, because books is like how they made their money in the production of it. And someone said like, no one's ever going to want to let go of the feeling of holding a book. Hmm. And I mean, I kind of feel like books have made a comeback. Like I feel like more people read books and they do digital print. So it's not the exact same comparison to cars, but I feel like sometimes you can't, there's a time, time, um, a timelessness to some of these vehicles. And I just don't think that people are going to let them go completely. I think, that you know oh, i think sure. we still have manuals <laughs> me and nigel both drive manuals <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> so yes. yeah not uh, hopeful <laughs> I, I think there, there will always be uh, like something to, to throw back or to harken back to as far as like you know classic cars like we're, we might be driving classic cars right now it's just it's going to take us 20 years to realize it exactly yeah totally <clears throat> what do you think nigel do you think are you excited for this next phase I'm kind of torn. I, I'm split between being like a purist and, and loving all the sensations and driving a manual car. And also I'm really excited to see like how that technology can make things better. So like I, I have two different setups when I DJ, 
I have turntables and I play all vinyl or I have the new, you know, MIDI triggered all in a, all in one box setup. And I love both of them for very different reasons. So I think the same thing is going to kind of go for racing. Like, um, electric cars have so many different, like advances with them, but you know, shift, just shifting through a manual car. Like, um, I got to drive like a, a vintage, um, spitfire at the racetrack has like no horsepower it's not like the most exciting car it's not the most fast car but it feels awesome and you get out to drive it you're just like just rolling through the gears and like feeling every single raw sensation is amazing yeah so i'm completely completely split there's going to be a draw (laughs) for the analog cars yeah yeah very cool well so as we're as we're winding down here uh Maybe fair. Just what are what is what is on your agenda? What is your next six months or a year looking like? What are what are you looking forward to uh, that you have coming up? Sure. Yeah. Of course, it's been you know really tough for both industries, music and motorsport. So the last uh, you know year and a half has been total switch of gears. Um, you know, sort of. Um, my business did get affected because again, obviously motorsports events are very face to face. It's not something you can replicate on Zoom, um, and so. I'm really looking forward to now, like, I think things are easing up a little bit and uh, obviously the vaccine and everything. So like, hopefully we're coming, just getting back to life with those things. Um, Cause they've, they've been a little bit um, on pause as, as a result. Um, even DJing, like, I mean, I guess people now uh, like haven't been out for so long that they really want to go out. So like this summer I've had two or three gigs that were like 13 hours straight, which was absolutely nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, like this, um, you mentioned earlier, I'm a podcast host as well. And I've, I've, I've really loved the whole podcast journey. So that's, um, something we're continuing to grow. Um, season three of my podcast mission makers is coming out, um, in the autumn and we actually do have a formula one driver launching the show with us. Cool. Um, so that's really exciting. Just the chance to like talk to people, um, you know, who, who are sort of doing crazy things, um, in the world, like Catherine and, um, we've got someone coming on the show as well. Who's, who's literally right now working on flying cars. Um, and, uh, and he says that that's something we will see very soon within our lifetime, um, which I'm really excited to kind of hear about. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that and just, um, you know, also with music, I'm producing quite a lot. Um, so hopefully we're going to be releasing some, some EPs, um, and then just getting back to regions racing really. And, um, you know, kind of just uh, getting getting some more events in in the bag and um, and getting to meet. Very cool, excellent. Well, we we have taken a lot of your time, and, and thank you very much for 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 sitting down and chatting with us. It's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll we'll have to do it again sometime here soon. Yeah, absolutely. It's been so nice uh, speaking with you guys. We talked about quite a lot of different things. Um, yes. And yeah, th- yeah, definitely. Any any time. Um, and yeah, have a lovely lovely rest of the day wherever you're listening to this yes who, who knows what what side or what continent you might be on yes well thank you very much for for joining us everybody if you've made it to the end uh, really appreciate your listening really pe- appreciate your support and uh yeah, until next time uh stay tuned as always with Flatirons tuning thanks everyone for tuning in to the Flatirons syndicate motorsports podcast once again we'd like to let you know that your support is what makes this show possible be sure to check out our online store at flatironstuning.com for any of your aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts needs. And as always, stay tuned with Flatirons Tuning.